The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask for your blessing upon our time uh, this evening, that you would pour forth your spirit in great might and power for the transformation of your people, that we would be conformed further into the image of Christ, that we would regrow, that we would that we would grow in respect of the faith that has once for all been handed down to the saints, the faith that we have just confessed before men. Uh, we ask, Father, that you would cause us to grow in the knowledge of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would cause us by your Spirit to humbly love Him, adore Him, believe in Him, hope in Him, trust Him, that we would be more and more like Him. Father, we pray for this particular body here in Powell. We are so grateful for all the work that you have done, all the many blessings that you have poured forth on us, all undeserved we are completely unworthy of every single one of them. But you have promised to give your spirit. And by giving your spirit, you have given us grace upon grace. And Father, we pray that you would continue to use us to propagate the gospel, to declare the gospel to the next generation. You would protect us from the evil one. You would protect us from the schemes of Satan. And Father, we are so grateful that you have preserved your church throughout uh, the ages. Even through trials and difficulties, you have been uh, so kind, and you have been merciful, and you have shown your love to your people. Father, we pray you would show that love to us as uh, underserved as it is. And Father, we do pray uh, for the work going on in uh, Bozeman. Uh, we're thankful for Pastor Brett Shaw, and that they have begun to meet. We pray that you would bring uh, many people to come hear the gospel, to come hear the truth we confess in our confession of faith, that a biblical and confessional church gets well established there for the sanctification of your people, for the salvation of the lost around that community. Father, that they would be a light in that community, that uh, you would cause their good works to be seen uh, by by men, that uh, you may be praised, honored, and glorified, that they would be engaged in those things that glorify you. Father, we pray for their perseverance and strength. We know that it's hard when you are small and just starting off and planting a church, but uh, we do know that um, you, if you're with them, then, uh, Father, who can be against them? Give them great encouragement. Bless them, Father, uh, richly with the knowledge of Christ. And again, Father, we pray you pour forth your, your spirit that, that you may richly bless that ministry there and give it growth and increase. Uh, Father, we pray for uh, Fellowship Baptist Church in Sydney, Montana. Been looking for a pastor for a while. And uh, Father, after the great scandal with uh, uh, Jordan Hall, who was disqualified and excommunicated, uh, Father, I'm thankful that. Um, a man has contacted me about that uh, uh, that that church there, and uh, pray, Father, that um, I'm thankful for the providence in, in that, and I pray that uh, you would make your will known in whether or not uh, this man should be their their next pastor. But we do pray you'd provide the, the man of your choosing, the time of your choosing, for the good and edification of 
those people, that this man would be a holy, that he would love you, and there's every indication that he does, that he would be sound in doctrine. And Father, we, uh, we're so grateful for that. Um, Father, we just think about our region. Just think about uh, a person that emailed me yesterday about uh, wanting to see a confessional church in Billings. And uh, Father, there's, there's great interest in this. And I noticed this. There's, there's been an interest in wanting uh, solid biblical churches with substance and a reformed worship. And Father, we do pray that you would uh, move your hand uh, towards this end, that uh, your people would would find places where they can grow and have substance and be cared for well, and that the lost can be reached with the, with the gospel with great clarity. Father, we ask that you would continue to do uh, this work in, in this region for the sake of Christ and and His name and His honor and His glory. And we pray that uh, you would illumine the text of Scripture we are about ready to receive, that you would, uh, by the power of your Spirit, uh, attend the preaching with the power of Christ. Father, I am weak, and I am frail, and, and I am weary, and uh, my, my mind is tired, but you do not grow weary. You do not lose any strength. You do not need to be replenished. So would you work by your spirit, Father? Would you be the strength and power uh, for the sake of your people and our edification? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever been in a situation where you had no idea how to even begin to remedy it or resolve it? Now, perhaps you came home one day and your basement was flooded because of a pipe burst and your all your furniture and the floor is covered in murky water and you're thinking how in the world is this ever going to be remedied uh, some of you may remember that uh, hurricane hurricane katrina that stuck that struck new orleans in 2005 my grandma was actually living there at the time and thankfully, she had evacuated because her entire house uh, was submerged. Well, not her entire house, but the entire first floor was submerged in water. And when she got back after the waters had receded, said, I have no idea how in the world we're going to even begin to clean up this mess, especially when the whole city had been submerged in water. <clears throat> These are things that you look at and you think, there's nothing that can be done here. Uh, perhaps you're not going. You've never gone through that uh, in a physical situation, but it, perhaps you're going through that now in a spiritual situation or an emotional situation. You're going through great difficulties and trials, and you have no idea how this can possibly be remedied. Uh, what is the solution? What is the correct action uh, to take? Uh, you may know Romans eight twenty eight. All things work out for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And you are not going to argue with that, but you just don't see how your situation can possibly be viewed in that light. Well, this was the case for Naomi, who wanted her name changed to Mara, which means bitter. She lost her husband, 
and two sons. She was a poor widow. And that's really bad back then. Because the person who would take care of you would be your sons. She had no sons. She was truly destitute. And worst of all, for any Israelite, she had no one to perpetuate her family name. To not have someone perpetuate your family name means that your family name does not last among God's covenant people. And that is the same thing as having your name blotted out before God. And so this was truly the worst case scenario for any Israelite woman. How could God possibly redeem her from this situation? Well, we see in the book of Ruth how God is more than able to do that. The answer lies in a Redeemer. God provided a Redeemer to turn her emptiness into fullness, her bitterness into blessing. But we see that the ultimate hope lied in a single child. A child who was born in Bethlehem. Given to her. A son born unto her. And this, beloved, is our ultimate hope as well. Naomi's hope is our hope. It is founded upon, in the words of Isaiah 9-6, a child being born unto us, a son being given unto us. Not necessarily Obed, but the one who would be born in his life. The true king who is Christ born in Bethlehem. And while we still have deep sorrow, grief, and sadness, and difficulty in this life that we just can't see right now how it will all work out, yet one particular son who was given to us, born unto us, is the one who redeems us from all aspects of the curse that we will experience in the new heavens and the new earth, fully and finally. So we see two portraits of our gospel hope in this passage. First, sacrifice. And second, a son. So first, the sacrifice. So we saw last time in chapter 3, Boaz swearing to redeem Naomi and Ruth. However, he had to check first with a relative who was closer. So he was uh, first in line, if you will. So he went to the city gate and sat down and waited for this closer relative to, to pass by. They didn't have messenger or, or phone calls or anything back then, so that's how he would try to find him. And he finally sees this man pass through, and so he calls him over. Now, the way the ESV translates this is, turn aside friend. However, in the Hebrew, it's not the word friend. It's the word so-and-so. I like the way the King James Version translates it. Ho, such a one. I might say that one of these days to some of you. Ho, such a one. Uh, this man is referred to in the most anonymous, nameless, and obscure way. Mr. So-and-so. Mr. Such-and-such. And this really stands out in this chapter, especially given the fact 
that this chapter focuses a lot on names. For serving the name of Elimelech, the name of the dead, naming the son born to them, and may the name of this son born to them be renowned. There's a lot of focus on names in this chapter, not to mention the genealogy, the names given at the end of this chapter. And, of course, there would be a natural curiosity as to the name of this close relative. However, his name is noticeably and obviously left out. The reason for this is because, as we are going to see, this man is about serving himself and not sacrificially taking up his duty as a redeemer. And so he has no lasting legacy. And his name is obscured in history. However, Ruth, who chose to sacrificially give up everything to serve Naomi and God, and Boaz, who also sacrificially served to be a redeemer, has a lasting name. So after Boaz takes ten elders of the city, seems like that's a quorum, uh, for the official legal business he's about ready to partake in, he gets right down to business. He asks Mr. So-and-so if he, as the closest kinsman redeemer to Naomi, would like to buy her field. Now remember, a kinsman redeemer did three things. Three main things. One, he would pay off his relative to debt. And a kinsman uh, is within their clan tantamount to our cousins today. Uh, so first, he would pay off his relative's debts so that he can keep their inheritance in the land. So should he have to be sold into slavery? Should he have to sell his land? Well, God wanted each family to keep their inheritance in the land. So the way to keep it is a redeemer to come and pay off their debts, buy them out of slavery so that they can keep their inheritance in the land. Second, the kinsman redeemer would pursue justice for his murdered relative. Third, he would marry the widow in order to perpetuate the family name. All of these involve sacrifice, especially if you buy a land only to give it to somebody later on, give it to the heir. So while it would cost him some money up front, that this so-and-so redeemer, uh, it would uh, eventually uh, pay off because this situation for this redeemer, this Mr. So-and-so, is actually a really good deal. The reason for that is because Naomi does not have an heir. So if he bought this field, he gets to keep it in his family perpetually rather than buying it so that he can give it to the heir later on. However, this is where Boaz tells him about the other part of the deal. Verse 5, Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So part of the package deal is you get a widow to perpetuate the name of the dead. That is, to perpetuate the name of her, her late husband. This is so that Elimelech and Malon would have an heir to whom the inheritance and their portion of the land would be given. In other words, he would have to care for a widow, 
Gentile widow at that, care for a child, help raise a child, and then give that field that he purchased to that child. And so Mr. So-and-so has a change of heart. Verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now he says he cannot redeem it. But if he truly wasn't able to redeem it, he would have said that up front. He would have said, no, to begin with, look, I can't afford to buy it. But he said yes until he hears, oh, there's a potential error. I need to take a widow. Uh, no, I can't do it now. He didn't want to because it might impair his own inheritance. Because without an heir, uh, he would, yes, he would have to fork out some money up front, but there's going to be a guaranteed return on his investment. There's little to no risk. However, if he forked out money only to give it to someone else, then he had a chance of taking a loss on his own inheritance. He wasn't guaranteed a loss, but the risk was higher. Uh, he was not willing to do the right thing and entrust himself to the, to the Lord to compassionately and sacrificially provide for helpless widows. Uh, he was like a calculated businessman, not caring for the poor, but only seeking his own benefit. If it would benefit him financially, then he would do it. It was about how much he could get out of the deal. And he used a loophole in the law to escape responsibility. If there was the next closest relative after him, then he could pass off his responsibility to him, which the law allowed. I think commentator Dean Ulrich uh, makes a good point when he says, In truth, this nearer kinsman exemplified the motivation behind legalism. He did no more than the law required, but his law-keeping was devoid of love. And so his name remains left out because there's no lasting legacy or future in a life of self-serving, refusing to make sacrifices for the benefit of others. However, it is much different with Boaz, the Redeemer. Before the elders who, who serve as witnesses, Mr. So-and-so took off his sandal and handed it to him. I know it seems like a weird custom, but it's like us shaking hands today. I, I wonder, later on, like a thousand years from now, world still around if people read of our customs and says and they clasped hands and then then went up and down like this if people are gonna be like that's weird why, why didn't they just take off their sandal or something like that each culture has a has a different quirk that seems normal to the culture but weird to other cultures in any case notice the focus of why he is doing this in verse 10 uh, also ruth the moabite the widow of malon i have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. So the primary reason he's doing it, it's not the only, but it's, it's the primary reason mentioned here, is to perpetuate the name of the dead, that the name may not be cut off from before the Lord. That is that his name may live on in Israel, and they maintain an inheritance among God's people because it was a curse to have your name cut off from God's people. It was having your name blotted out before the Lord. But this curse of having one's name blotted out before the Lord is remedied 
by a Redeemer. And it would cost the Redeemer. He would have to sacrifice to do this. It, it is not for his own investment, but for the investment of another. Imagine suddenly acquiring another family, including children. I, I was asked once by a, a good friend to be the inheritor of his four children uh, should he and his wife die. And said, Look, you know, we're making a will and stuff like that, and it's just in case something happens. And so, you know, would, would you consider doing this? And while I was honored, I was thinking, how in the world would I be able to have four children in my family? And uh, I was thinking about agreeing to it on one condition, that he and his wife didn't die. But he said that uh, I would get a million dollars, which would be helpful. But still, uh, adding four children to a family would be a sacrifice. It's, if the Lord called me to do it, need to do it, and trust that he would provide it. But when you sit down and think about it, yeah, that would be a sacrifice. And it's not a sacrifice that is as costly as the one that Boaz would have would have faced. I, I think it, you see Boaz. There's no mention of sacrifice. Seems very noble. He's gaining a wife out of the out of the deal, but there's still sacrifice involved in this. Uh, Any time a redeemer would do something like this, it would be a sacrifice for him to take care of another family, to buy another field. But it is a sacrifice that Boaz was willing to make rather than Mr. So-and-so. And beloved, we should be grateful that our Redeemer is not Mr. So-and-so, but our Redeemer was willing to come for us and his whole life be a sacrifice for us in being a man of sorrows, bearing the curse, and ultimately sacrificing himself on the cross for us. That our Redeemer would assume humanity be born of a woman. That's something that's obviously normal for us, but God assuming flesh and blood to be one of us and not to have his best life now, but to suffer for us. But what do we read of him? Psalm 40 in, in Hebrews 10. He says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. I delight to do your will. He came for us. He came to redeem us. He came to sacrifice Himself for us. To lay down His life for us. A greater sacrifice than any Redeemer, kinsman Redeemer, made in the Old Testament. Beloved, if this is who our Redeemer is, if He so loved us, then should we not also love one another? The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2 that in light of Christ, not considering equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying Himself and becoming obedient even to the point of death on the cross for us, that this should propel us to have the same humility of mind and sacrificially love one another, considering their interests more significant than our own. So the first portrait of our gospel hope is the sacrificial love of the Redeemer. The second portrait of our gospel hope is the Son being born unto us. 
And we see that this is no ordinary son that is given. First, by what the witnesses say in verses 11 through 12. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So they must see the Lord doing something significant here because of how they respond. This is, no, this is nothing ordinary. They are not praying merely for a child to be born uh, for Ruth uh, or Boaz. Rather, uh, they are praying for Ruth to be like Rachel and Leah who built up the house of Israel. Remember, Rachel and Leah were Jacob's wives. Jacob, who was renamed Israel. So they contributed to the 12 tribes of Israel, the, the original uh, uh, tribes of Israel, the original sons of Israel. And then they prayed that his house, Boaz's house, become like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now, this is actually a scandalous part of Israel's history. If you remember from Genesis, uh, Tamar, like Ruth, was a Gentile, and Judah lost two of his sons that were given to her in marriage. And then Judah refused to give her his, his next son, his third son, uh, because, let's face it, she has a, a track record of husbands dying uh, being married to her, so he withheld her. And so she deceived him by dressing as a prostitute, disguising herself as a prostitute, and Judah went into her, and then Perez was born to her. So that's a scandalous part of Israel's history. But I think what's going on here is that they are wishing, not for the scandalous and sinful circumstances, but for Boaz to act worthily, with this Gentile woman, as we see in verse 11. They want both the good outcome, like Perez, but it to be done in a worthy way, unlike Judah. But here's what I think they're saying, because what does it mean to build up the, the house of Israel when it's already been established, like Rachel and Leah? You can't repeat that. I think what they're saying is they want to see Israel restored. They want this child to restore Israel, to build it up in that sense. Because remember the time frame of, of Ruth, Ruth 1.1, in the time of the judges. Well, how was that? You know, we read the book of Judges and we see just how terrible those circumstances were. But they're hoping that this child is special, who will build up Israel, similar to Rachel and Leah, who will rebuild and restore Israel. They are praying for a child who will restore the people of God. Second, we see that this child is given by the Lord. Verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his Lord, gave her conception, and she bore a son. So notice, it doesn't give the common saying, and she conceived, but rather, the Lord gave her conception. This is specifically attributed to the Lord. 
And of course, all conception comes from the Lord, but when it mentions it in Scripture like this, it has redemptive historic overtones. Uh, the Lord giving Ruth conception after not having a child with Malon, after being married to him for 10 years, implies that her womb was closed. And any time that a child is born to a woman who had a closed womb, it's a special child. Think of Abraham. Sarah conceived after a very long time, in fact, at, at age 90, a very old age. Hannah, her womb was closed, but then she bore Samuel, who was dedicated to the Lord's priestly service. And this pointed to an even more impossible situation. A virgin having a child, giving birth to the Christ. That the point of having children out of barrenness, or even virginity, which only happened once, is that this child, this son given to us, is a special child that comes from the Lord. And we see that here with Ruth. And we see how special this child is in that he is called a restorer of life. Verse 15 calls this child a restorer of life to Naomi. Remember, the focus of the book of Ruth is on Naomi. Her emptiness being filled. Her life being restored. And verse 17 focuses not on this child being born to Ruth or Boaz, but to Naomi. It says a son has been born to Naomi. This son being born unto her in Bethlehem, who is given by the Lord, is the one who restores Naomi's emptiness. What restores her life. She left God and went to Moab. We remember that in Ruth chapter 1. To try to be filled, to try to be provided for, to try to be blessed. And in doing that, she was leaving God. She was leaving God's protection, God's provision. Remember, Psalm 37 says, dwell in the land and enjoy faithfulness. Well, they didn't trust that. They left for Moab, and she only experienced emptiness, death, and the bitter curse. But how is she restored? She is restored by the single child born to her in Bethlehem. And even the fact that she took him up in her arms, showing that her hands are no longer empty, but not but now full by the single child. This child born unto her and son given to her in Bethlehem, the city of David, is what prevents her name from being blotted out before the Lord. And we see that this child is a servant. Verse 17 says his name is Obed. Obed means servant, which echoes Christ, who is called the servant of the Lord. But he more than echoes to Christ by his genealogy in verses 18 through 22. Obed is King David's grandfather. This is important because, again, remember how the book of Ruth started out. It was during the time of Judges. And when you read the book of Judges, you see how terrible and tumultuous that time was in Israel. And it says it was a time when everyone did what was right in his own eyes because there was no king in Israel. What does that imply? There's a need for a king. There's a need for a king 
to restore Israel. The king is the answer to restoring Israel to building it back up. Well, the book of Ruth begins with, with a reference that they were in the time of the judges, implying there is a need for a king. And the book of Ruth ends with King David. The child being born, this child given unto them, is the grandfather of their desperately needed king. This is how the king would be provided. He is not only a restorer of life to Naomi, but to all Israel. But more than that, he is in the line of the true king of kings, our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate child given to us. The ultimate son born unto us in Bethlehem. He and he alone is the restorer of life of his people. He and he alone is the son given to us to prevent our names from forever being blotted out before God. He and he alone is the one who delivers us from all the emptiness and bitterness in this life due to the curse. To restore our life. He is the king who rescues his people from their sins. He did this by being born of a virgin. Born under the law in order to redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He bore the curse of all our sins in order to forever deliver us from them. He became empty so that we would be forever filled. And this filling is not only in the age to come, beloved, where we experience nothing but blessing and joy in His presence. Uh, this filling begins in this life. Because this life is hard. This life is difficult. But there's hope and there's a promise. Only for believers. Only for those who are in Christ. Romans 5 says, We rejoice in our sufferings. Who in the world would ever rejoice in their sufferings? Well, it's knowing this. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. No suffering brought to us by the hand of God is wasted. Because it produces this character in us. And that is evidence of our hope. God is preparing us for glory. He is transforming us in the image of Christ. It shows the path we're on. That we are on the path to glory that has begun in this life, His Spirit is in us, working in us, conforming us into Christ, which will be brought to completion on the day of glory. And so as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, the light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. But this is only true for Christians. Only true uh, for every one to whom this child has been given, who has believed in this child. Unbelievers will get their best life now. Believers get their worst life now. And so we have a good hope because of the single child that was given to us and the son that was born to us in Bethlehem. Our ultimate hope is this Redeemer 
who willingly, sacrificially gave Himself up for us. And that Son who was given to us. A Son whom God did not spare, but graciously gave up for us all. And so to end, in the words of verse 14, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left us without a Redeemer. And may His name be renowned among us, the church, the Israel of God. Amen. Well, let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that You would help us to believe in Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, with a deepening faith, to trust Him, to rejoice in Him. He's our only hope. And so, Father, help us to fix our eyes on Him. In Jesus' name, Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.